band called Zombies Ate My Girlfriend. They're from Cape Town, South Africa. And I'm introducing them today because our guest is Edward Banks. He wrote a book called Heavy Metal Africa, Life, Passion, and Heavy Metal in the Forgotten Continent. Maybe you saw Margaret Welsh, our music editor, also here today, uh, wrote an article about it in last week's paper. So we thought it would be fun to uh, dig a little bit deeper because 350 words is not really enough to uh, cover everything that goes on uh, in the continent, in the book, and with Edward. Hope you enjoy our talk. Listen up. Why do you think... Heavy metal in Africa is surprising to people. Why do you think it makes people think? Because uh, it's not what they expect from Africa. I mean, everyone has their mind already made up about Africa. I've learned this a hard way. I mean, I've been studying Africa academically for over 10 years, and everyone seems to already have it in their head what Africa's really like, though it's far removed from the truth. Uh, but And heavy metal, too, has a very negative perception and stereotype. Mm. And so when you're trying to tell people that there is heavy metal music in Africa. They're just, no, it's, uh-huh. no. Uh, most people, they hear the title and they think, so what, like aluminums and alloys? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> metal, the rock. That's why the cover features two guys, you know, one guy screaming and another guy playing a metal <laughs> guitar. Are there any qualities of metal in Africa that are distinct, um, that are that you wouldn't hear in European or American no, metal? No, uh, that's, that's, that's a great point. That seems to be a lot of the, the focus. Uh, that's why I had to address it a lot in the book. Uh, no, but not yet. I think metal has its own thing. I think it's very uh, inclusive as, as, uh, as opposed to being exclusive. I don't think metal has metal has a standard that we all recognize around the world, but I think there's once the scenes get rooted, I think you're able to start incorporating a lot of um, maybe folk mm-hmm. and traditional elements of the music. Yeah. That's I mean, I, I published an academic article about this this year. I get, I get to speak at universities about, and this is the thing I get uh, asked about the most. And it's a fair question. I'll explain, I'll try to be brief, but once scenes have established themselves in Europe, we're now starting to see the rise of bands from like Finland Mm -hmm. that have folk attached to the word metal as a prefix, right? So folk metal, and we're starting to hear that. Uh, One of my favorite all-time bands uh, called Amorphous uh, incorporates a lot of Finnish uh, legends into their music, lyrically at least. And you start, there's like maybe an instrumentation in the background. And that happens. You have bands like Thailand's uh, Chthonic. No, I'm sorry, Taiwan. They're from Taiwan. Um, a band from Israel called Orphan Land mm-hmm. that got to play with this. But metal was established in those places for a while. Once they're able to be rooted, once it's able to get off the ground, then maybe they can do that. I think the reason why African musicians don't do this yet is because they just still want to get taken seriously. They mm-hmm. still want the respect from their peers around the world. And... Um, Plus, a lot of musicians, I, I specifically, there's an argument in the chapter with Kenya from this guy. He's like, we have to be very careful. His name is Alistair, and he's in a band called Parking Lot Grass. He says, because you, if, if, if you do this, you stop being in a rock or a metal band. You start to become something else, and that's not what they want to do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I've, they're giving ode to their heroes first and foremost. But I, I think in time, I honestly feel that probably within 10, 15 years, maybe we'll start to hear some of it. I've heard in two examples of it so far, and it's it's still very, very, very uh, minimal. Hmm. Um, you talk about this in the book a bit, um, but can you talk a little about um, how heavy metal kind of found its way to Africa and how a- African musicians started getting into it? Sure. It's or- it was organic. It wasn't um, – I have a friend, Mike, in Florida, always said that he was always hoping that it was like a Peace Corps volunteer leaving a Guns N' Roses cassette <laughs> in the village. You know, I was like, no – 
It actually just started organically. It started with the big, the big ones. If you focus in the book, the countries I go to have a strong connection to Europe, mm -hmm. whether it's through its population or their uh, business dealings. Or the fact that even a lot of citizens, like in Botswana particularly, this was a, a British proctor. It wasn't uh, an actual colony. But they, uh, Botswana citizens travel to Europe a lot, and they live in the UK, and then come back to get educated there. So the, your connections are strong. Um, let's say South Africa, I think, led to a lot of the countries in Southern Africa getting it, but uh, they have obviously a stronger connection to Europe, um, even though they were shut off from the rest of the world. Uh, and then there's a whole population of South Africans, the Afrikaans, who are, I, would, um, I always argue, and I still argue in the book, uh, that they are an African tribe by many regards. They've been there 500 years. They've developed their own culture. They've developed their own language. And they are very much a part of that landscape. And they once fought with the blacks to get rid of the English, though they lost. But um, those connections are still there. Um, and they were still, because of the development of that country, they were able to develop uh, radio. They had the radio infrastructure, they had the magazine, the print infrastructure, they had the international television's infrastructure, they were watching Top of the Pops on South African television, <laughs> the British shows. Yeah. So it happened. Uh, that's how it did. No one forced it. They just they just chose the music that they wanted to. But because of, like, I'm going to say that South Africa led to Botswana, uh, and then Zimbabwe sort of did it on its own, and Namibia had the connection to South Africa, and Mozambique sort of just got whatever they could. In Madagascar, they had pirate radio, but the music was being played there it was being played there from um, from French radio stations on Reunion Island but they also had the connection to France because people in Madagascar were moving to France and then they were coming back and they were bringing back the, the music they really 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 enjoyed mm -hmm. and it was rock and roll mm -hmm. um, there really weren't many rockers though in France <laughs> but maybe Johnny Holiday but um, that, that's how it got there. It started organically. I was surprised to see how deep it went. Hmm. I just thought, okay, well, maybe this is all relevation within the past 10, 15 years. And I was shocked to see that there was stuff going on in the 70s. Hmm. Now, the other story is that in the 1960s and 70s, in countries like Zambia, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, even some of the West African countries like today, Burkina Faso and whatnot, they had what they called a... Uh, they had like a psychedelic rock movement there, all on its own, entirely organic, because they heard what was going on in the West, but they basically fused it with their local music mm. as well. And they had record labels, they were printing their own records, but those artists really never got out. Mm. That's something I'm, I'm actually working on for another book. Oh, really? Yeah. But that, that all happened. It just turns out that those bands didn't influence what came later. But I, I was really surprised to see that it went that deep and it's been rooted that long. But I think rock and roll lends itself... Uh, to tra tra traditional African music anyway, because contrary to belief, most traditional African music is played on strings, mm -hmm. not on percussion. Right. So it just makes tons of sense. Yeah. Well, I was interested to read in uh, the ways that, or read about the ways that it kind of, um, that uh, people in Africa kind of participated in this thing that was happening around the world of like tape trading. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so that was kind of, and you yeah. know, the, the sort of scare tactics of like, yeah, it was, they weren't oblivious <laughs> to it all. But mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh -huh. if, if you, I don't know if, how, like, if you're in a metal yourself or not, mm -hmm. but um, back, back when I was growing up, you had MTV and whatnot, but we, we buy, you could buy metal magazines, Metal Edge and was it Metal Maniacs, and they always had those pen pal sections in the back. Circus Magazine did, and then you could see where people were requesting music. They'd say, mm -hmm. I heard a uh, Metallica band, and I really want to hear more like this and you would just start shipping things off but you were able to send tapes to places like South Africa that had a boycott mm -hmm. and you're able to infiltrate like sort of any sanctions to yeah. those things. Zimbabwe sort of had one too uh, 
so th this thing's always still got in you know um so yeah very much so you're still connected they were and they were what would uh so i was understood as i put in the book they were living off of six month old metal hammer magazines and <laughs> actually worked their way back down to south africa yeah that's so cool so, so it was pretty cool uh, flight attendants i think were probably the underlying story in all this too i think flight attendants <laughs> helped <laughs> somehow but yeah when did you uh, get into metal? Was that your, the first type of music that you yeah, got into? Yeah, of course. It's the only thing that really made sense to me. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in grade school, I don't know, I was born in, what, I'm so 37, I was born in the late 70s. Uh, MTV had hair metal exposure everywhere, and I liked it. I really liked the sound the guitar made, and I really got mm -hmm. into it. First album I ever bought was Poison, Open Up and Say All. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit that. Second <laughs> album I ever bought was Skid Row, self-titled. I still own that record. <laughs> now, yeah, that's still just the album, just rocks. I don't have the cassette anymore, though. Mm. Or the old cassette. Yeah, survive and just smell them for hours. It was, <laughs> it was like something you held. I was a kid. I, I liked it. I think uh, once I heard thrash metal and I heard the right hand attacks and whatnot, I was just, this is it. Yeah. I did like 90s. I did like the alt rock thing for a bit, and there were still some bands that I really liked from that era. Like who? Uh, um, well, I guess, I don't know if they started them. I, that Sponge band I still really listen to a lot. Um, late, lately, uh, work I'm, I, to get myself through some of the days, stuff like the tonic and the, the really melodic-based stuff, the mm. replacements, I guess they were really more earlier, but I really like that. And then my post-punk thing, Jawbox, Fugazi, the DC stuff, yeah. I can't stop. <laughs> Jawbox is still one of my all-time favorite bands. And if you're listening, get Jawbox's last album, self-titled. <laughs> It will change your life, <laughs> guarantee you. So that that stuff stays with me still, and um, I I don't know if it's if what side of the line they fell on. I call them a heavy metal band, but Helmet was mm. the band, the greatest band. That was the best band from the '90s, period. And then, but I still like in Oasis for some reason. I still really like Oasis. So yeah, so yeah, but metal still just rules everything about my life. Mm. It still controls <laughs> my my financial situation. <laughs> Easily, I still buy way too many records, and I'm never ashamed of that. I still go to as many gigs as I possibly mm. can. I still like seeing live music. I still like seeing local music wherever I can. I go, mm. so that's it. When did you start to get interested in Africa as an academic person? I was an adult, about 25, 26 years old. I was a, a college dropout, and I had nothing, no ambitions really beyond. I was playing in a heavy metal band, and I thought I had it all figured out. Yeah, but uh, I wanted to learn more about the world. I realized I knew nothing. And I don't know why Africa, it just made sense to me. I just was stuck with it. I was found myself being uh, consumed by any art, anything I can get with Africa on it. Any articles in the newspapers, magazines, books, I just wanted to read and learn about Africa. I think that was the one place I wanted to learn the most about. And it just stuck with me, and I was obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. And then I went for the first time in 2007, and I came back. Uh, I was an undergraduate student at uh, Florida Atlantic University doing a BA in political science. Mm -hmm. And I was, I, I told all my professors, well, what can I do? I looked and researched. I said, well, I could go get a master's in African studies. I'm going for it. Hell, yeah. I want to get a PhD. I still do. But that's it. Like, yeah. Africa was it, and no, no ifs, ands, or buts. Where was that? Where, which country did you go to? The first time I went was Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. surprisingly, one of the worst years ever for any country in the history of the world and the history mm -hmm. of time. Um, they have a ruthless dictator who's still alive. Uh, we're very hopeful. Now, Fidel Castro, I think Robert Mugabe's the last of the last. Yeah. And uh, we're very, I don't know, we'll see. He's been managed out, let's uh, live everyone, though. Uh, it was really rough because there was heavy sanctions on the country. The inflation was through the roof. Like, 
2008 was even worse, but when I was there, the price of goods were changing so much during the day. So you bought a cup of coffee in the morning, you went back for, <laughs> and you went back to refill that same cup of coffee, and wow. it had already gone up in price. When you're realizing, I saw in stats that uh, 2008, with the, the price of one, lo one loaf of bread in 2008 cost what 12 cars cost like in 1984, wow. something in Zimbabwe. So you're just, it was insane. But everything I did was just black market through the American dollar, and um, yeah. But I loved it, and I loved every second of it. So what was the research process like? How, how many times did you go over there, and where did you go? I went four times. South Africa, Botswana, Kenya, Madagascar, Mauritius, Reunion Island, and Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did go to Namibia, though I don't write about it in the book. Mm -hmm. I thank the guys in Namibia very much in the end of the book and the acknowledgments, because I had to because they put me up and still the same thing, and I did yeah. those big trips through the country. I just didn't really feel that there was enough there to hatch out a book. Yeah. Or a chapter, I should say. Right. Uh, I went every year. We started in 2012 just for metal. I saved and went. I took every job. 2012, I was working as a substitute teacher in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I had to do. When I came back, I still had the eligibility to be a substitute, so I picked up a few more shifts before Christmas break, sorted it out, and I worked at a bookshop, and I moved to Pittsburgh where I took a job doing lawn care, which I hated, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and then restaurant work. But the, the restaurant work afforded me um, cash, and it afforded me the, uh, the opportunity to go leave for six, seven weeks out of the year. Um, so can you, like, walk us through, like, what one of those trips is like? Yeah, I mean, I'll just, look, it's, uh, the, the biggest uncertainty when you get there is you don't have it all laid out in front of you. It's not all planned out. I did my best to research every single musician I could meet and every single place I wanted to go to. Uh, Madagascar was particularly challenging because I only had about a, a handful of contacts, probably about eight or nine people. I said, well, I can meet these people here. And I, it took me so long, and I started to get a little worried myself, but... I had a guy who volunteered to be my translator. Uh, he sent me a message, and I was talking. And for a while, when you're talking to people in places like Madagascar, they were using Google Translate to communicate with you because of their language barrier. Yeah. But uh, he was. He told me he would translate. I said, "So you're not using Google Translate?" He's like, "No, I'm. I'm just. I'm, I know English." So I said, "Okay, good." And then he helped me, put me put me in touch with a friend of his who lives in the capital city, who allowed me to rent his apartment out for him, from him for three three four weeks at a really good rate huh. and uh, they were shocked when I paid them cash when I got there and they like saw the money I gave them in American dollars and they were like shaking oh, wow. uh, money yeah the American dollar goes a hell of a long way in Madagascar and I'm not exaggerating that. Mm -hmm. and anyone who's ever been just laughs and they said yeah I spent about uh, $300 in one month on rent on on three meals a day for two people and all the traveling that I had to do throughout the country and I, it was Jesus. only $300 wow. yeah so there was, but um, so needless to say, he was. They were like, "Oh my gosh!" He was nervous walking to the bank with that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Not that anyone, not that it's really dangerous place or anything. I just don't think he's ever handled that kind of money. It was, it was even less than a hundred dollars. You know, I think it was a lot. It was the amount of money I made the last night before I left at the restaurant. <laughs> I just put it in my pocket, said wow. this would be my, I'll yeah. give him. Yeah. So um, yeah. I see, we take this for granted sometimes. So we, uh, I didn't know what to do, but when I was there, I, I was met at the airport by this guy. First of all, it was really different. I, contrary to what you think, I'd landed at a at a real like third world airport, right? Mm -hmm. Landing strip building. You get off the plane, you get escorted, but you have to walk the whole way uh -huh. to the tiny building that's at the end, and that's their arrivals terminal. That's their immigration and everything. I had to pay a bribe before I even made it to the first immigration counter. Mm -hmm. 
um, because the woman said all oh, my paper, like my, my paperwork wasn't right. And I said, what paperwork? <laughs> <laughs> Did someone tell you about that? Was someone like, all right, be ready to. No, no. You I, were people, just like, oh, okay. I had only known a handful of people that had been there before. And they said, yeah, it's a very easy process and Americans don't have to pay for visas there. But she told me I didn't have a yellow book. Uh, the travel documents yeah. that say that you have your malaria, not uh, malaria, I'm sorry, uh, yellow fever shots. Yeah. And I said, you don't need one. And no one else had one. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever. I, I dealt with it. I paid her. I gave her 20 bucks and went, and then I ended up getting my visa for free. And I laugh every time I see that. It says free right on the freaking thing. <laughs> but I went, and when, once I was there, um, it, as has happened before, no one thought I was serious. No one even bothered to respond. I said, who's this American who's coming here to interview us? Yeah, right. We'll believe it when we see it. But then I got there, and then it just really happened. Mm. But the guy who was helping me translate set up a few meetings for bands I never heard of, people I didn't even know. And it just went, and it just it just took off. And before I knew it, he made like a handful of phone calls. And he says, well, here, here's all the people you're going to meet during all this time. And I just said this was getting, it was getting actually too much that I asked him to schedule a day off and he thought I was crazy. Hmm. Once we had the day off, he was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I didn't know it was all there. I didn't know how big rock was there. I didn't know that some bands played in front of like 20,000 people at their national stadiums. I didn't know that bands were being used by politicians to perform songs on behalf of politicians. I had no idea <clears throat> that a rock song was, was a big part of their national story. Like, I had no idea. Mm. It was only when I went there that I see that this actually was what was going on there. And all this stuff just kept it just kept going as I went. And then I learned, I thought there was maybe two bands that existed before, like in the 80s. No, there's a whole bunch. Mm. And once I was there, I was able to meet them all, and I got all the stories. So th that, that's the process was, was frustrating. It, w it really was, because sometimes I, I didn't know. In Kenya, I thought, I same thing, I, I had it all laid out. The Kenya scene wasn't particularly large, same with Botswana's, so I had an, an easier time with it. But I went as I, I went, uh, I just went with it. And Mauritius, Reunion Island, I had no idea what to expect. Yeah. I just knew who I would be staying with. And I knew who was picking me up at the airport. But then I just said, well, we'll just go with it. And every day I just kept meeting more and more and more and more people and getting more stories. And I started to have to start to decipher what was relevant, what was irrelevant, who was telling me a great story, who was not going to tell me a great story. And there were times where I had to pass up on interviews. Um, and I, I, I know, but I made a rule, and I explained it in the, in the introduction. I only write about who I met. Hmm. If it's if at time I felt that it was really important for me to include a story from someone whom I didn't meet, I, I would set up an interview uh, through email, uh, and in one case, like a Skype-type thing. And then I just... That was it, but that's only because I felt it was relevant. But I didn't want to get too carried away because I could easily, each chapter could be its own book. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. easily. Hmm. But I, I just wanted to make sure I had a guideline to stick with because else it would it would go on forever. Uh, and it was frustrating for some. They said, well, you didn't meet with us. Like, you know, I was like, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> it's like you could have written about this person and this person. Yeah. But bear in mind, everyone everyone just pops out of the woodwork says, I was in a band once. Right. Why don't you yeah. interview me? I was like, yeah, but what are you actually doing? Yeah, yeah. Some of these bands are really working hard. They're getting internet presence and stuff. And I don't want to discriminate between that and one band or another. And I did try to get as many different perspectives as I could. I actually would step out of my way if there was uh, women in a band and say, well, let's go meet them. Let's see what they have to say. Because mm. uh, I know it could be easily saturated. Uh, I feel bad because in the one in the book in, in South Africa's chapter, I met an all-female thrash metal band. And I really, through cutting out all the edits, I didn't even get to include. I realized there was not a single quote from any of them in uh -huh. there. And they had some strong things to say about being a woman in a really conservative country playing heavy metal. And I was yeah. like, damn, why did I leave this out? You should write another book about that. <laughs>
Yeah, I wish there was... Or an article, There's more. You know what? Like, women are around it, but I don't step out of the way also to say they're females. Right, yeah. I don't step out of the way to mention skin color with musicians, Mm -hmm. which has already gotten me some flack from the academic world. Like, why don't you discuss race? Like, why does it matter? Mm -hmm. Why do I have to say that this musician's black or white or of mixed descent or whatever? Should it matter? I let the music speak for themselves, but... Kenya has a surprisingly diverse scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of women in the scenes. Hmm. Uh, Not everyone in the the book... um, is is uh, Kenyan black uh, things that you learn there that, that they say there's uh, people that are of Indian descent because there's a large community of people of Indian descent in, in Kenya. Mm-hmm. There's a handful of Europeans uh, mm-hmm. interviewed in the book too. But I just let it. I just wanted to let it be. I just wanted it to be about the musicians. Yeah. Although I mean, just leave that out. race does come up naturally. You're just not. Yeah, I guess in some. I guess I couldn't avoid it in South Africa. Mm-hmm. You right. understand why? Yeah. Uh, and some people have asked me about like, well, look at the photos of the bands you have on there. It's like, yeah, but I could just turn the camera around so you can see the crowd. Yeah. Then, 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 what would you say to yourself? Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, it's there. I I do go to the Soweto Township to go meet a band in Johannesburg, and I didn't meet them. It's weird. Like I, I know what it looks like. I didn't go there on purpose to go meet them because they were a, a black all-black black metal band that makes sense if you mm-hmm. if you like metal you know black metal but you know they're from the Soweto Township and that's just the music they like and they started a band I went there to meet them because they're probably one of the more popular bands in the Johannesburg heavy metal scene and they've earned it mm-hmm. they're getting a lot of really good shows they're getting a lot of great opportunities and there was never any favors handed out to them because well, we, we think we need more black guys in the band I think the, their music community is a little more democratic you hear stuff and you just don't know who's on the other side of the uh, you know but you you just take it for what it is, and it was just a really good product. Plus, but because I went there, I got a really different perspective on what playing metal was like in a in a township. Mm-hmm. Um, because surprisingly, South Africa, you can't win. Uh, the whites are really, really, really conservative. The Dutch Reformed Church still has a grasp on things, though they can't validate apartheid anymore. But they still have a grasp on everything. And in the townships, I think are even more conservative. Mm-hmm. That's even more. There's a long-standing tradition. They think that's devil's music the guys were telling me that they used to skateboard and how they would they would get shunned because they think that's yeah. that's something the devil would do yeah. just, they can't you know no one can win but i think it just really brought the uh, the unity of, of metalheads even more i did musicians told me about what church and religion means to them you know um there's a lot of catholics in in these african countries and in some some places there were a lot of muslims too and they, they told me about what it was like being raised muslim being raised catholic and how that holds and how sometimes that at least you know, their basis for their life is through those religions, but they understand what this music can do for them, and they can use it as a way of having a conversation with themselves and with others who maybe were also brought up with with Islam or Catholicism that they want to step away from certain aspects of it. You can still believe in God, you still do your things, but there are questions that they had for it. So maybe there's a liberation in the music itself, yeah. So it, it is odd, though, but I think that's... I don't know why this music continually gets scapegoated. It's just a form of expression. Like yeah, other f- especially like when you're really into it and you know what's really going on. It's just kind I of know. Like well, so we could say that. Yeah. Well, you and I could say that. You and I listen to this music. Maybe you do. I don't know. But, a little bit. Okay. Yeah. She knows more. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you, we know that, and we know that the imagery of it is just the same way you look at how you approach Halloween. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I'm like, oh, Satan, so corny. <laughs> it is. And it, I think it's funny, but it's like when you get down to the story, Slayer seems to get a lot of flack for a lot of the things that they do. Uh, so does Slipknot, and I don't see what those bands have to do with Satanism. Yeah. At all. Um, so in addition to the interviews, I imagine you were going to shows as well. Yeah, whenever I could. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes, I the bands were organizing shows around me being there. 
they would plan. There was a festival planned in Angola for me, and I was I was shocked by it. Uh. But I, I couldn't get there. Oh. Uh-huh. And um, but they, right, yeah. they, the guy and I, we had orchestrated um, times to meet up and whatnot. He's like, if you're going to be here during this time, I'm going to organize a festival. And he has a festival that he organizes every year anyway, in a city called Kutumbela. But he sh- changed the date so I could be there for it. Uh, in Botswana, the band Metal Horizon threw a concert for me. They had me on the radio that afternoon in the capital mm-hmm. to talk about what I was doing there, why I was there, and then they, they, they threw me on a bus to drive four hours across the other side of the country, and on the flyers they said, American journalist Edward Banks will be here. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just odd, because people walked up to me and they wanted their photo with me and everything, like, come on, man, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> you know, but I thought it was really sweet. Um, uh, a band uh, in Cape Town that I write in the book, uh, Juggernaut, this starts right away with that band. They mm-hmm. organized the whole tour around me being there mm-hmm. so I could get to see uh, from the perspective of the band, how, how it is to be in a touring band in South Africa, you know, things like that. Uh, I, thought that was, I thought that was really, really awesome. So one thing I don't think I stress enough in the book is how, how, how much they, uh, these musicians made an effort to reach out to me. Once, once, once I started to go, I set up social media pages, right. and they realized that was serious, and word started to get around in other African countries, and musicians who had known of others just through networking and whatnot, though they'd never met. And other countries were saying, this guy was just here and he's serious. He's like, for real, for real about metal. He really loves this music. They were afraid that I was just a Western journalist with a patronizing view, mm. that I would see them as a novelty. And they said, no, he really knows Africa. Yeah. yeah. And I thought I was moving. Just the things that I saw them do, they would, t- they would take vacation time from work. They would, uh, Stefan, my translator, like kind of quit his job so he could help me out for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't have to do this, especially in Madagascar, <laughs> man. You know how hard it is to get work there? But he... um. I, I was just moved by it. There were so many times where I had to just like take a moment and walk away. I didn't realize it would just be like become such an emotional connection I had mm-hmm. to these people. But I, I still, I still when I'm like doing some of these press things now and whatnot, I start go through photo albums to send photos out, and I just get stuck. And I've gotten through emotions that I was like, wow, just to just to see what people would do. They had they had dinners for me. They had barbecues for me, just because I was for the first time. There was a guy in Madagascar, and I guess I'll share the story. But he was shaking when he met me. He was. I was like, "Why is he nervous to meet me?" And and he was like almost in tears. It's like my 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 translator Stefan said that he's been playing music for thirty years and his band is a really big deal here in this country, but he's never spoken to anyone about this music, about what he does and why he does it. Mm. And he was just just completely uh, taken by that. And I th- I was too after a bit because I was like, "Wow, I'm like giving these guys a voice." And so the press in Madagascar will never take what these guys do seriously. Mm. But they'll go play a show and rock. And there's five thousand people that rock up, mm-hmm. but no one's ever asked them why. Or what what do these music mean? So I started to get. It, I changed the conversations completely. Just to, you know, I would say, tell me about your records. Like, and they were getting a kick out of being asked like what their favorite songs were that they had recorded themselves mm-hmm. and why why they feel that this music had connected to these to these uh, to the people of Madagascar. And and I noticed the whole time they were still so content with working as an electrician full-time and mm. then just playing music maybe a, a three concerts a year or something. But they realized they weren't going to get anywhere else. And I, I'm glad to hear that because I, I'm not that I, I don't think they deserve it, but they were brought down a bit. Some, like, young bands, especially in South Africa, they sort of had these things, well, we're in a band, we're, we're just waiting to get signed so we can leave. Like, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work that way for anyone. I guess that's a universal thing. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody. Yeah. I had to tell them. I did yeah. press interviews there about, about, about the books released in South Africa, and they were, I think a lot of people, I told them that you should never take what you have there for granted. You have a, a, just a marvelous heavy metal rock scene. You have a great rock community, uh, and don't, don't let that 
be taken for granted. And if you're the biggest band in South Africa and you never leave that country, so what? If you're making an impact on someone else's life there, just take that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't want to make you play favorites, but were there was were there a couple bands that you just couldn't that you yeah, just fell in love with? Tons. Yeah. <laughs> Too many. Yeah. And I get don't worry, it's okay. I get this question asked all the time. And I've I told the other guys in, in these countries, like, dude, just relax. Like, <laughs> I, I promote your bands as much as I can. But yeah. I, I some of these bands have made really great strides. There's a band out of Cape Town that's just flooring everyone. Zombies Ain't My Girlfriend. And they played in um, at the Valken Heavy Metal Festival in Germany this year, and they, they rocked it. They had, like, thousands of people show up. Five, they said, like, 5,000 people. They said they got goosebumps just from seeing the crowd. But they went over so well. It was They, they crushed. They sold out of merchandise, and now they're are getting hammered on for more from people saying, I heard about you guys from Bakken. Yeah. And there's a reason why. Zombies Ain't My Girlfriend get, win that contest? Was like There's a, a called a Balkan Metal Battle, uh, and they do it in uh, small, like other countries outside of really the, the metal sphere. And yeah. Balkan themselves decided to host this international stage where they paid uh, a band from each region of the world that doesn't get represented. Well, even in Europe, places like Estonia, um, maybe they do like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia contests. Yeah. Uh, like Caribbean has one, South, you know, South America. And they ask bands to come and, and play. There's one out of Canada, and there's only one in Africa, but it's in South Africa, and it's starting there. And I, I know the guys that run that, and they said they're going to ho hopefully start branching to other. But you'd have to pay for yourself to come from like Kenya to Johannesburg just to play for a night. And if you do well, you have to come back because it's it's like it's an attrition process. But Ooh. it's no shock that Zombies Ain't My Girlfriend won. If you see them in South Africa, you see the crowds that they're turning out, yeah. and you hear you hear them, and you see the professionalism that they have, and you hear the records. Uh, there's no reason why they're not going to be. I think they're going to be ready to go to the next level soon, easily if a if a label's willing to take them on. Do you think metal is more like international in a scene, like a, as yeah. a more international scene? Yeah, big than, time. Than it's other, very global. Than other genres, though. Probably better, more so than any other genre. Yeah. There's, a, I mean, the conferences I speak at at the universities are heavy metal music conferences, and all the papers have, are addressing heavy metal around the world. It's nothing new. I mean, heavy metal crap. What Metallica played in Indonesia in 1992? Yeah. Has Taylor Swift played there yet? <laughs> no. Come on, Sepultura did the same thing in 1991 in Indonesia. Uh, who was Sepultura in 1991? But they still filled out a whole soccer stadium. Yeah. Why do you think that is? 
the music connects to so many people. You live in a place like Indonesia, especially at the time on the Suharto, that was shit. And uh, Sepultura was probably the best band for that because they came out of what they called a dictator shit. They have a song called that. And the, the, the records they were releasing at that time were just focused on living in that sort of life. Uh, and the, of course it connected with people. And of course Sepultura's music took off in South Africa for a reason. Because they were able to relate to that. Yeah. You, had, you had privileged white kids growing up in a, in a, in a, in a, in a system that benefited privilege. Mm -hmm. That was set up for privilege. That was set up to establish white privilege. But yet they found they found so much comfort in hearing that things just weren't right because it still was a police state. Mm -hmm. You still didn't because we were if we if we were white in South Africa right now at this at our age in 1988. That doesn't mean we still had total freedoms. Yeah, you know, we couldn't talk about how we should go and like maybe go give some some money or books or or clothes to some some kids at some school in some township. Yeah. We get arrested for that. So, yeah, they found the connection to that big time. <laughs> It was bad, but I think that's why it connects. It's just too. It's just too. It's just too much of an honest form of music for it not to connect to anyone in the world, and that's why metal just rules for this reason. I don't think you can't connect to pop. Yeah. If you do, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> if you live by it, it's too much of a here today, gone today genre of music. Definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just there's no establishment. There's no one there to establish a connection with you. And you can grow with your musicians and whatnot. I mean, maybe some pop artists, maybe like Madonna. There's only a handful that really do this. Or in metal, yeah, they may not be as successful as Madonna. But they are there forever. In a metal band, I'd rather have a metal band's career. So if you only sell 200,000 of each record you do, but you're going to release 10 albums and you're going to tour all over the world every year, why not? Yeah. So what? You only have 2,000 at your shows. Mm. Big deal, but I'll take that for 10 years straight. Because some of these artists fall so hard. And you don't get that in metal. Sometimes you, you get you get even more popular towards the end of your career. Like Iron Maiden, I think, saw the biggest resurgence I've ever seen. Mm. Do you still play? I used to. Yeah, not anymore. I haven't. What did you play? Guitar. Actually, my band was out of Pittsburgh. Playing in a band called Negative Theory from 1999 to 2003. Mm -hmm. Doom, Stoner, Sludge, Hardcore. That's it. It makes sense to us, but it didn't make sense to anyone back then. <laughs> now it seems like we'd be right on. Yeah. I hear when I hear Mastodon, especially, I kind of just like, that's exactly what we sounded like. Yeah. So that, that was it. So I, that was it. I, I was disappointed, but it ended up being the best thing that happened in a way. Cause then I went to Florida to go move with my family, and my mom like made a deal because she saw I was so upset, and I was kind of lingering down with that. Mm -hmm. She said, if you're going to stay you stay with me, move in with me, I could use a good roommate. And um, if you go to college, uh, how about you just stay with me instead of getting a job and we'll do this together. But mm -hmm. she's like, I want to see you do something else with your life. And I found Africa, man. I never would have done that mm -hmm. had if I decided to pursue music. So yeah. I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks that was the best thing that ever yeah. happened. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like right. I said, that was like two years after all that. I went to Africa for the first time, and I was like, I, I sold, I sold my equipment, <laughs> I sold everything I had just to go. Yeah, I, I was committed. I even joined another band in like uh, West Palm Beach, and I thought that was gonna be a pretty righteous band. Yeah, and I, I stopped showing up. I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't even tell them. <laughs> I just stopped showing up. I think like, I, mm. I'm obsessed. I found a. I didn't even really know I liked books that much. Mm -hmm. I started reading. <laughs> And I worked at a bookstore. Mm. Oh my gosh! I, you, it's the worst job ever to have if you like reading. <laughs> so I found that I just like uh, I'm busy, guys. I'm reading. I, like, I I got this book I want to finish, and I want to start this book tonight. Yeah. So I that's it. I became a dork. 
<laughs> it was it was cool. Now my passion is books. Mm. I, I'm speaking at uh, City Books on December 13th. Okay. Uh, I always get into more. I kind of touched on a lot of it, but yeah. uh, most people, you know, the writing aspect of it, because no one talks about the writing style and whatnot. And uh, how just when you think you know how you think, oh, I, c- I could write a book. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, where where all is the uh, the book available? Well, it's available point? on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I mean. Uh, Amazon and Kindle worldwide. It's available on most Amazon sites worldwide. Mm-hmm. Awardassociation.com has it. I sell it myself. If you hit, if you hit me up on social media, mm-hmm. I've been sending copies myself all over the world. That's mm-hmm. cool. Shipping isn't so much here within the U.S. Yeah. Uh, it's when you leave. Yeah. I'm really excited. I'm just excited to see where this book goes next. Mm-hmm. So I thank everyone if, if you're going to buy it. Thank you ahead of time, and I hope to meet you sometime. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, a big thanks to Edward Banks. The book, once again, is Heavy Metal Africa, Life, Passion, and Heavy Metal in the Forgotten Continent. also want to thank Margaret Welsh and send a big thank you to Zombies Ate My Girlfriend. They actually sent us those songs. Those are the ones that you heard. Uh, one is called Jahan, and one is Appropriate Hate Crimes. Uh, Jahan has a new video out this week, so definitely check that out. If you enjoyed their music, uh, look into it more because there's a lot more where that came from. All right, thanks a lot. This is the City Paper Podcast. My name's Alex Gordon. Thank you for listening. Yeah.